Hello and welcome to Taiwan Talk, a show where we speak with people living in Taiwan and Taiwanese people living abroad. I'm the host Trevor Tortomasi, and joining us in the studio today is Sasha Zakaris, a researcher at Taiwan's Academia Sinica, whose work focuses on interstellar dust and maybe some star formation. Thanks for joining us today, Sasha. Thank you. Okay, I was going to ask you、uh, if you know about star formation. How do I become a star? Okay, <laughs> let's skip that question. We'll come. <laughs> we'll circle back to that. Sure.、Um, so you've been working closely with Academia Sinica. In Taiwan,、um, how long have you been working there?、Uh, so I came here in January of 2019. So it's、uh, well more than three and a half years now, I think. Okay, wow,、yeah. big part of your life. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and、uh, what is what has been the focus of your team's research? Can you kind of bring bring us into like what you've been looking at recently? So what our team at Academia Sinica of、uh, IAA is looking at、uh, or studying、uh, is the interstellar medium. So everything that is between stars, all matter and and stuff and radiation and things that that are there. Does that in this might be a really silly question?、Uh, actually, all my questions might be really silly questions.、Uh, does that include stuff between galaxies, or then do you just call it intergalactic and not interstellar? Uh, so as long as you're within a galaxy,、uh, you call this like the interstellar medium, so、hmm. medium between stars.、Uh, there's also the intergalactic medium, so that's the stuff between、uh, single galaxies or、uh, galaxies. And is that so different that it would be a completely different field of study? There's much less stuff there. It does seem that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so moving on quickly before I embarrass myself,、um, how did you come to choose Taiwan for your work? Ah,、oh, so、um, actually, I was、uh, here in 2013 for the first time,、mm-hmm. and it was a big conference on interstellar dust. This was the start of my my PhD research, and then at the end of it,、uh, the person Siska、uh, Kemper was working here on interstellar dust.、Uh, she said, "Do you want to do a postdoc here on interstellar dust?" Which is was the topic of my PhD. So I thought that this is perfect. So yeah, I moved here in 2019. And can you tell us about exactly how big inter-、uh, Academia Sinica is? Because I know it's more than just cosmic study, but it, there's also a lot of other stuff. Like, how what is your department like?、Uh, so our department, I think, is very versatile. So it they work on parts of telescopes,、mm-hmm. uh, but also on the research. And this is really a nice、uh, combination of things, and、uh, I really enjoyed that you have both the developing parts of telescopes and and the research as well. I、uh, really get really an insight in how how things work, and I think、um, IAA、uh, at Academia Sinica, the Astrophysics、uh, Institute and Astronomy Institute, is really、uh, on top of that that business. They're involved,、uh, for instance, in the ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope that they're building、mm-hmm. in Chile.、Uh, So, I、yeah. love the names scientists get to give some of this stuff because <laughs> they get to make them up on their own and like, hey, we're smarter than you guys, so we get to decide what to call it. We're going to call it the extremely large telescope. Yeah, I don't know where this is going to stop, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What do you call the next one? Yeah, so we have we have already the very large telescope,、okay. right? So it had to be something that topped that. So it's but it's it's extremely large. And so most of these. Telescopes are outside Taiwan, but you're processing the data here.、Uh, yeah. So when when such a, a facility is finished, then、uh, you also get the opportunity to to observe with them, and then that data comes back indeed to、uh, to Taiwan, and then we we process it here. But yeah, sometimes you have to actually go there and observe. So、mm. that's also what、uh, what some of the astronomers.、Uh, At Academia Sinica are doing. Okay, that's awesome. So, for what you're studying, which is specifically or mostly interstellar dust,、uh, 
I'll ask this question in the simplest way I know how. Space big, dust tiny. How do you observe something that uh, that we might think of as very, very, very small so far away? Yeah, so indeed, these, these dust grains that I, I study, they are like 0.1 micron sized. So they're very, very tiny. Whoa. Uh, but there's also a lot of it. So that It seems helps. like you might need the super duper extremely large telescope for that. Uh, yes and no. We have a kind of a disadvantage that we're sitting here on Earth and that all the exciting features of interstellar dust in in spectra of stars that we, yeah. So what happens is you look at the star and then on the way there's a lot of, of dust. So your star is slightly obscured uh, and you can make a spectrum of the star and you see the tiny features of, of dust in that spectrum. And the most interesting features in the spectrum are, if you look at the whole wavelength range, are in the infrared and in the x-rays. and Everything that's well absorbed by the Earth is in that little infrared range, by the atmosphere of the Earth, I should say. And in and the X-rays, of course, they also don't reach the Earth because, well, that would be very bad for us if we got a lot of X-rays here. So infrared is at one end of the light spectrum, right? Yes. One far, far end. The, the, yeah, uh, for the, the very R- Roy part. G. Biv, it's in the R. And then the X-ray is, is it the other end? or That's is it? the, the uh, other end, yeah. The other end, yeah, okay. In the very energetic part. Okay, wow. So there are space telescopes that we use. <laughs> yeah. So I don't get to go anywhere. <laughs> uh, well, you don't you don't need to go anywhere, I guess, because, yeah, because there's a 7-Eleven down the street. <laughs> okay, um, I'm assuming most interstellar dust isn't just made out of the same stuff, but like, how different does how does it get out there? That's actually a question that we can't really answer yet. Okay. Yeah, so we're looking at that. Um, you mostly just know it's there, but you're kind of still trying to map out what it is? Well, we roughly know what it is. So we roughly know that you can compare it to uh, soot, so carbon-like, very small carbon grains, like cigarette smoke. On the other hand, you have, and that's the major part of it, uh, stuff that looks like sand, uh, but then very, very teeny tiny small sand grains, silicates. And, uh, for instance, a very dominant um, uh, component of that is olivine uh, that you might know from uh, from the beaches in Hawaii that look a bit green. And it's also in, in the ring of my finger. Uh, oh, my that's finger. awesome. And here on the necklace. <laughs> oh, heck yes. So you got some dust on your, yeah. uh, your accessories. So this stuff, it's from the Big Bang and then gets made and has not been made into stars yet? Or is this stuff coming off of stars? So this stuff is really made by stars. Okay. Yeah. So when the Big Bang happened and when the universe was expanding and the first stars were generated, these stars are completely different than the ones that we have in our galaxy nowadays. Uh, They're the first generation of stars and they're the producers of dust. So in the beginning, you didn't have any any of these heavier elements. They're produced by stars. And if stars get old, they start to yeah, swell up and a lot of chemistry is going to happen. And uh, a lot of stuff gets dredged up out of the star and into their atmospheres. And then it slowly condenses. And these are these yeah quite light elements like silicon, carbon, magnesium, oxygen, uh, and iron. A little bit. In the end, the star will eventually die. So Mm -hmm. what will happen is that part of the star will implode. And uh, depending on how big the star is, you'll either get a black hole or a neutron star. And this year is a very violent uh, event or not that violent. But what will happen in any case is that the outer layers of the star will be blown away. And all that stuff is given back 
to yeah, the medium around it and can and sometimes form new to stars. Other, okay, to other yeah, stars. Yeah, it can form new stars. Uh, so yeah, we, we think that that's like the basic components of dust. Okay, so recently, um, oh, I, I've read that your team recently had a project of, uh, approved to use the James Webb Space Telescope, which was launched last year and then released its first pictures uh, earlier this summer in July 12th to use the JWST for your upcoming project. Are you allowed to tell us about the project or exactly what you're looking for? We are looking with the James Webb Space Telescope at 12 stars. Mm. And those stars are not that far away from us, but have quite a distance from us that there is stuff in between us and the star. What, and what's not that far away in, in sort of cosmic terms? like? So it's not the center of the galaxy. A thousand light years? <laughs> oh, it's always hard to convert this to light okay. years. So okay. what astronomers do, they use, they use parsecs. I have to do the conversion. Oh man, I've got to look up parsecs again because the only time I ever hear it is in like Star Trek or something. And then I, <laughs> I never know. Why is, why is it better than light years? Or why is it easier than light years too? If you look at the star in the sky during the year, you'll see that the position of it is slightly ro rotating. Around, right. Yeah, uh, that is because the Earth is going around the sun. Mm. And you can measure the distance toward a star in, in that way by seeing how much uh, it deviates. So if, if this wobble that the star makes is large, the star is quite nearby. But if it's very far away, it's almost standing still. And this conversion of getting the distance from that, that goes with the angle, and the amount of movement it makes is easier to express in parsec, wow. which is the unit of that. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's parsecs. Uh, but yeah, light years makes more sense for if you just yeah want to interpret how fast is light going and then how far away is it from us. So I think if you do it three times the amount, you, you get you get light years. So our stars are at two to three kiloparsecs so there's mm -hmm. two to three thousands of these parsecs okay so yeah it's, it's quite a distance it's away it's quite far away okay. yeah so you're studying these you said 12 stars and yeah. they are in our galaxy they're in our galaxy and uh, so in between us uh, and the star there's a lot of dust so we selected sight lines that have um, are diffuse so you can you can still observe the star but they're still quite dense that you find dust features in the infrared there. Uh, so we're looking at these silicates and these carbon features, and then we want to determine what kind of stuff is it? What type of silicates? What happened to the silicates? So some of these uh, grains, they mm, might have lost their crystalline structure. So when they're made by stars, a percentage of it uh, cools in a way that you get uh, crystalline features. But if they're uh, crystalline grains, but if they're in the interstellar medium, they get bombarded by radiation, by particles, and they might lose that structure. Uh, or they might even grow in the interstellar medium. We, we don't know. And we grow because they're like gravity sort of bring them to, yeah. brings them together. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they're in this like denser environment and they might clump together. Yeah. So the structure of these grains kind of tells you their history. So what they've been through in this violent environment. And we want to see if we can put limits on, on, on that, on, on what they endured in the interstellar medium or how they grew there or yeah. It'll take a while before James Webb will give us the data still. So in February, my 
we might get the first data. Um, Ooh. Yeah, yeah. That's so exciting. So we're, we're doing preparation work. So that's what the day looks like, preparing for this. Uh, yeah. Okay. Building up databases with stuff that we was measured in laboratories uh, to compare later on with the stellar spectra that we get from James Webb. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw that they're going to do... Uh, I think it was like their Instagram page or something, that, but they're going to do like a talk. Uh, ever wonder how we process the pictures we get from JWST? Here's a black and white one or like actually it comes in black and white and here's how we color it. And they're going to go talk about the process. So like uh, some of the things come in as pictures, right? Or or do all of them actually just come in as wiggles and they have to interpret it into pictures? There, there are several instruments on JWST. So there is the camera MIRI, uh, there's near cam, and then there is a spectrograph near spec, so that uh, observes these uh, spectra. Uh, Miri also has a spectrograph. So then these instruments, they all do a different job. So one takes pictures and the other does the spectra. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the nice spectacular things you saw were the pictures taken. Right. Of Just the easiest nebula. for most people to be like, look, it's pretty. But what they also, well, yeah, so what they will talk about, I think, is uh, uh, how do you color this? Because it's infrared, we mm. cannot see there. So we have to basically take our own uh, colors that are further in, in, away in the spectrum mm. and move them to where James Webb is now. So for us to interpret this uh, and then people say, yeah, it's fake colors. Well, yeah, it's fake in a way, but how would you see it otherwise? Otherwise, mm. it's just a a black and white image. It's like taking a it's like taking a dog whistle that humans can't hear and then readjusting all the sounds so that you're hearing the same grouping of sounds but just lower register. Yeah, yeah, just lower. And so it. then they're doing that for the eyes. Okay, that yeah, totally makes but sense. But you have to set the limit somewhere. Mm. So that's what they'll explain, I think. Okay, that is awesome. I'm looking forward to it. What is the difference between maybe the, the telescopes here on Earth, like the very large telescope, um, and the JWST? Obviously, that one gets less interference from Earth's atmosphere out there in space. But are there advantages to some of the very, very large ones we have here on Earth that you use specifically? Um, yeah, absolutely. There are differences and advantages. If you build on Earth, you're not really restricted with the size. Mm. Uh, you can build something as heavy as you want. Whereas if you're going to send it in space, every kilo is millions of dollars that mm. you add to your project. So you don't want to do that. I think with James Webb, they build it as light as, as they possibly could, uh, but also as big as they possibly could, right? Because it's mm. unfolding and this was this whole difficult space yeah. origami going on. So that makes it also complicated uh -huh. and more costly. Uh, so you can build a telescope on Earth that has yeah is, is way bigger than James yeah. Webb currently is for the same amount of money. So there there is this this balance, but then from Earth we cannot always see the same thing. It, it's it's much harder to observe. You have to open the the box of of tricks, uh, but the very clever tricks of uh, how to yeah compensate for what the atmosphere of the Earth is doing. And we've becoming very very good at that. We are able to observe planets directly around other stars. Mm. Uh, because we are so good at stabilizing this stellar image. If you wouldn't do that, the star is like wobbling all around your image. There is so much to think about. Also, I really love the phrase space origami. 
Um, and I'm going to try and find ways to use that in my everyday life. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the, the nasty thing about telescopes, they always have deadlines. Mm. Uh, so they keep coming. So if you go on vacation, they're not going to wait for that. Um, right, yeah. So Because they have uh, 10 other teams that are waiting to use the telescope as well. Or? Uh, well, they want to make schedules. So right, if, yeah. if you have time, then uh, y you need to you know, put your your schedules in okay. um, so these deadlines they're scattered through the year so the more telescopes you're using <laughs> the more deadlines you give yourself <laughs> how many telescopes are you using oh yeah okay so for the james webb project um we want to characterize these stars very well so for that we used a very large telescope in chile and yeah. the so JWST. that's optical and and so infrared JWST. Then you go to optical, that's Hubble and VLT. And then you go to X-rays. And for the X-rays, we use XMM Newton and Chandra. Okay. Those are the two space uh, X-ray telescopes. Uh, I want to also look at the X-ray part of the dust story. That's a different study because we cannot use stars for that because they're not very bright in these X-rays. But if you use X-ray binaries, those are binary stars that revolve around each other. Mm -hmm. But one of them is a neutron star or a black hole. And the other one is a yeah, an evolved star or a normal star. And there's matter like drawn from that star in a disk, going in a disk. And the gravitational energy from that gener generates lots of X-rays. And these X-rays, they also go through the galaxy when some of them reaches us. Right. And get absorbed, scattered along the way by dust and also generate features that are very uh, significant for the type of dust that's along the way. So you can look at the composition, the size of the grains. The, yeah, these things combined give you sort of a fingerprint of the dust composition and crystallinity that you can also observe with it. And do you have a telescope at home? No. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> you're tired of so. Okay, so you don't you don't once you once you're off work, you're kind of like I'm gonna. I actually just never brought anything or bought a telescope in Taiwan. But okay. when I was in the Netherlands, I used to um, be a volunteer at the older observatory that they had in Leiden, like the old. Uh, one with the antique telescopes. And Is that when you put your eye to and you exactly oh, and you man, look okay. through? So uh, sometimes you need some kind of a reality check, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, if you look at Saturn through a telescope, for instance, it's so much more real than when mm. you see an image of it made mm. by someone, and then you see it on a screen. If you see this through a telescope. It feels completely different. I don't know if, have you seen Saturn through a telescope? Once? I have not. No, every single time, first of all, I don't own a telescope and I really am starting to think that I should. But well, yeah, go, I think go I'll do start. that. It's nice. Yeah. All right, get telescopes, everybody. Earlier this month, on August 2nd, the JWST released a new picture of a strange uh, cartwheel galaxy. Um, and the description uh, in the picture, it looks sort of like if you were to, almost like if you were to cut an orange in half. And it has like an outer ring of really bright, at least in this picture, sort of reddish glow. And then reddish glow in the center that was really, really bright too. And they talked a lot about um, sort of the interstellar dust in this galaxy um, lighting up parts of it. Um, have you looked at this picture? Yeah, I've seen the picture. It's oh. really nice. <laughs> um, so my question is, they talked about dust in this picture sort of lighting up. When does dust light up and become part of the picture? And when does dust just kind of obscure our observation? So that really depends again on the wavelength that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So with James Webb or JWST, you can really look 
through these clouds a lot. So you can see the stars that are behind it and you see much more of the glowing if the dust is warm. So that that's really also why we move to this wavelength because you can observe far more than with Hubble where uh, things were much more obscured by mm. dust. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really depending on the wavelength but also on what kind of environment the dust is. Okay. And then uh, another question I, I wrote, which now seems a little bit silly, but it's kind of how long can dust just sit there before gravity brings it together? Just just thinking about all that dust out there, it makes me wonder, why hasn't that dust just collected and formed into stars already? If you compare how much gas there is versus how much dust there is, then if gas is 100%, then dust is only 1%. So oh, okay. There's not that much of it, but it dominates a lot of the processes in star formation. Hmm. And it, uh, it's um, kind of accelerator of this process. So if you have a dust cloud that's very big, very diffuse, a lot of radiation can penetrate, uh, not much is happening. But usually in these clouds, there are um, yeah, certain parts of it that are slightly denser. And these might be the starting points of where gravity can take over a bit and start to contract these clouds. And if they're contracting and there is there is a dust in, in these clouds, dust can cool the cloud and it can yeah, shrink more easily. It goes faster. And dust just shields this this cloud, so you got a lot of chemistry going on. Um, and then eventually, maybe if your uh, cloud is uh, heavy enough, it contracts that much that it can form a star inside. So yeah, not a silly question at all. <laughs> okay. Um, because, yeah, dust is important in in all these yeah steps. Okay, and then are there parts of the galaxy that are kind of just dustless? Or is it so pervasive that you can always find a little bit wherever you look? I think you can always find a little bit of dust everywhere you look because we're also in our solar system <laughs> and mm. there is dust all around it. So I don't think that you can look in a in dustless direction. It will always be there a little bit. So we want to know what the composition of this dust is, right? Because in the end, we are made of stardust. So if you want to understand life and how planets form and how a solar system forms, you need to know the basic ingredients, like the starting stuff. And that's what we start with this project. What, what is it that goes into the whole star formation, like into the, into the birth cloud of the star? And another important part is, is it different in different parts of the galaxy? Uh, what if you change the composition slightly? you end up with a completely different sort of range of planets. We want to understand how rocky planets like the Earth form, but what if you change the composition of the dust slightly? Do you get the same planets or not? And how homogeneous is it throughout the galaxy? Maybe it's not. Once we can answer that, you can uh, make your models a lot better and start to understand way more of this, this whole process that we currently don't know. And understand how the heck we all got here. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and why our galaxies look so the way they do. Okay, then this is sort of a tangential question, but like when humanity finally uh, attempts interstellar travel, um, or even maybe for satellites that are really getting out there, um, how much do we have to worry about just the ever presence of dust hitting whatever is trying to travel really fast? It seems like it's impossible to avoid. Yeah, I haven't thought about interstellar travel that much because <laughs> I would never undertake it. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, there is always this possibility that you encounter mm. a grain 
big or small, uh, once you're outside of our solar system, these chances are very limited. I think most of the dust here is is because the, it's a remnant of of the of the very dusty disk that was once there. But yeah, there are still there's still grains out there, and uh, yeah, that can be dangerous to during your travel. Um, so, what is the most difficult aspect of your field of work? I think it's the the, the steps you need to take. Uh, when when we start comparing models, because we, we build models and we compare it to our observations, um, you have to put a lot of trust in these models. Now, these models rely on laboratorial measurements. So first you have to understand this whole lab process, which is on Earth. It's not comparable to space. So then you have to adapt these and make them into dust models that are comparable to space. I think that jump between making the models and comparing them to what you see that's really the hard part but then what you get from space might be a surprise and you have to go back to the lab so it's kind of a of a cycle you go through hmm. and yeah the more you observe the more you learn and you're going through this cycle luckily with a whole team of people who are working together yeah does luckily. that make it easier or harder um it makes it easier because okay, everyone good. knows something and hmm. can help others when you're stuck so that's that's great of being in a team and uh, this team is uh, consists out of uh, more than 30 people so we have a lot of expertise there yeah dang 30 people that is awesome mm -hmm. um and these people are all at academia Sinica right now uh or are you talking about the other project with jwst or is it so the same team? this is jwst the, the project yeah. um some of them uh, are at academia Sinica, uh but a lot of us are just scattered all over the world okay we have i love when humanity teams up on something like this <laughs> that's just so nice when we can all look at the same thing for a bit astronomy is very peaceful yes <laughs> Okay, um, I guess finishing it off, what are you most proud of so far? Well, I think this project, um, because it was quite difficult to to get uh, to select the sources that we wanted to look at. What are we able to observe in within this project? And we pulled it off within the whole COVID misery of 2020, oh, yeah. submitted this proposal and then got the news that we, we were Have selected. Had, what was the application process like for JWST? Uh, you write uh, a proposal of a few pages because a lot of people are submitting these kind of proposals. So they have to be concise and they have to convey the message uh, very clearly. Um, so this takes actually a lot of work. Summarizing stuff is, is hard. <laughs> so we wrote this proposal and it took us, I think, around six months to do the research about it, to condense it into this whole story and, and to submit it. Wow. And also you have to research the the instruments um, uh, and then um, show that you can actually do these observations, that uh, you don't need a more sensitive telescope even than James Webb, or that it's uh, that you could do it from the ground, that it's actually very simple. So yeah, you have to go through all these testing stages in your proposal. Um, so moving back to talking a little bit about Academia Sinica, um, from your experience working there, uh, what do you think Taiwan's place is in the future of cosmic research? I hope Taiwan gets a big role in it, and it already has. So I hope they, they retain that, of course. Mm -hmm. This is where our work is building the telescopes and doing the research. I think that's something that's so valuable and that Taiwan has that. And it's the it's the one of the most prominent institutes in Asia. 
it, it's it's really great that Taiwan gets to focus on that is is already a, a good thing. Yeah, and actually, there are a lot of astronomy institutes in Taiwan. I don't know, there are more more than five. So. All right, well, I'm apologizing to any <laughs> non science oriented listeners, but there's going to be more science episodes coming up in the in the in the future. So. Um, okay, and uh, finally, is there anything you'd like to say to people living in Taiwan, anyone who might be interested in astronomy, or any young people listening who uh, might think about a future in science? Yeah, if you're interested in astronomy, uh, please visit the open days that Academia Sinica is organizing. Yeah, if you have any questions, I think you can always email the Institute and follow the dream. If, you, if this is the your dream becoming an astronomer don't think i'm not smart enough or i don't know if if i can do this uh you can do a lot uh, if you put your mind to it and then you'll find uh hopefully a team of 30 other people who also want to do that right <laughs> yes. and want to help you <laughs> i think this is all fascinating um and thank you so much for uh for the hard work that you've done you're welcome and thank you for uh thank you to academia seneca for allowing uh researchers to focus on all this awesome stuff and, and get the news out to the world and thank you uh sasha zekers for coming and joining us today Thank you. And this has been Taiwan Talk. Until next time, I'm Trevor Tortomasi on ICRT FM 100. If you'd like to hear more from ICRT, you can check out our other podcasts. We've got Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the news in Taiwan every Friday. English in the News, for useful English expressions explained in Chinese and EZ News, spelled with the letters E and Z, for simplified daily news. For some lighter news in both English and Chinese, check out News Bites and News for Kids. And if you enjoy them, tell a friend. Thanks for listening.